Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome back to Unheard. Last week, Vladimir Putin gave an interview to Tucker Carlson, which ended up being more of a history lecture, going back all the way to 800 AD and the founding of Russia. This week, the Kremlin, somewhat strangely, has started sanctioning British historians. One of the names on the Kremlin's new sanctions list, alongside the British government's director of submarines, deputy national security advisor and the deputy defence minister, is one Professor David Abulafia. David is a professor of history at the University of Cambridge. He specialises in Renaissance and Mediterranean history, the Holy Roman Empire, and most recently, the history of the oceans. But according to the Kremlin, he is a Russophobic British representative trying to discredit the constitutional system and socio-political processes of our country. He makes, according to the Kremlin, a significant contribution to the subversive work of London in the Russian direction. Well, we thought we'd better talk directly to Professor Abulafia and find out what about his version of history does Vladimir Putin find so dangerous? He joins us from Cambridge. Hi, Professor. Hello. I'm not sure whether you're being, you've been elevated or downgraded from a university professor to a national security threat to Russia. How does it feel? Well, judging from the number of emails I've had congratulating me, it uh, feels rather good, actually. You know, on the one hand, it's an enormous surprise because I don't normally write very much about Russia. But on the other hand, um, it's good to be there with colleagues who... Um, who are serious historians, people like Norman Davies, Orlando Figes, and so on, who are also on the list. Uh, and of course, they are much more expert when it comes to the history of Eastern Europe. There's that sort of puzzlement about why I'm actually there. Do you have any idea? Was there some particular essay you wrote or public statement that sounded critical of Putin? Well, I did write, I think it was about two years ago, I wrote a piece for The Telegraph which was about the Ukraine war just as it broke out. And the point I was making was that the target uh, was bound at some stage to become Odessa and beyond that, Moldova. Now, I was saying this in the context of work I've been doing. You mentioned that I write about the oceans and particularly, actually, I've written about the Mediterranean. And at the moment, I've moved on from those seas to the Black Sea. So uh, I am writing about the Black Sea, 
but I've not really published anything about the Black Sea, so I would like to think that the Russians have not read anything that I've written so far. If they have, they must have uh, rather elaborate ways of getting So you don't think they're it. spying on your Yes, notes. well, I, I hope they're not, anyway. Hmm. Not that it would really make any difference, because um, what I've been writing is is not particularly politically charged. The bit I'm really keen to get into, you say that your essays haven't been especially politically charged. What we've seen recently is that all history has become politically charged. And if you call any snippets of the long interview President Putin gave to Tucker Carlson last week, history is pretty much all he wants to talk about. So your profession suddenly is absolutely in the centre of geopolitics. Well, it's interesting that it's um, in the centre of geopolitics in this particular context, because, of course, within this country and in the United States, within the English-speaking world, in fact, uh, there's been an enormous amount of attention to history and how we should write about the past, and particularly the question of um, the way in which we might want to reinterpret the past in the light of current consideration, current obsessions, I mean, issues to do with legacies of colonialism, so restitution of objects, the payment of reparations, all that sort of thing. And one of the things which I and a number of colleagues have really been trying to do is to say we've got to go back to the study of the past uh, with a very close eye on the evidence. We've actually, you know, we're not talking about what we want to have happened, we're talking about what actually happened. The strangeness, in a way, is that your work with that project, the History Reclaimed project with colleagues, you've been trying to resist what I suppose is a, is a push from the political left more than anywhere else to reinterpret history and, and burden today's generations with the guilt of the past and so on. But on this controversy, your opponent is on the political right, I suppose, if you can put Vladimir Putin on such a spectrum. His reinterpreting of the past is is very different. It's, it's sort of, you're facing the opposite direction in this standoff. Yes, indeed, yes. And I suppose that justifies our claims to be um, somewhere towards the centre um, when it comes to these issues. What we're looking at, of course, is uh, a, a head of government, head, head of state, expounding an intensely nationalistic position um, and so that too is, is, I mean, that's a perfect example of this politicization of the past. I don't have any doubt that he actually believes what he's saying. He claims to be quite well read about the origins of Russia, but it does then become all entangled with this obsession about how Ukraine, Belarus and Russia are actually one nation. Um, and that goes back, I mean, I've I've looked at the writings of Soviet historians from the sort of 50s, 60s, that sort of thing. And that's the sort of language they were speaking, of course, as well, at a time when the Soviet Union existed. So uh, they were talking in terms of the eternal brotherhood of these three, uh, as they then were, separate Soviet socialist republics, without having to worry about the idea of them being brought under an explicitly Russian umbrella. I suppose that was the time that Putin was going to school in exactly, the 50s yes. in Soviet Russia. Yes. So in a way, it's quite a communist worldview in a sense, even though he completely rejects those ideas now. Yes, it's that sort of combination that you do find of, on the one hand, um, and you see the same sort of thing in China nowadays, on the one hand, 
adherence to a strongly nationalist viewpoint. And on the other hand, all sorts of aspects of the sort of Marxist-Leninist outlook have been uh, have, have simply evaporated. So if you actually go back to the thinking of the Soviet Union about nationhood and you look at ideas of sort of, well, it's essentially Russian superiority um, and how the Russian Empire was created, uh, taking in these peoples who would be allowed a sort of subordinate position within this uh, great polity. You can see where uh, Putin's ideas come from. But the really interesting thing, I think, is this concept of Ukraine as the motherland of all Russians. And that goes back to, I mean, he's right about one thing, which actually a lot of Soviet historians tried to avoid, that the effective founder of the first Russian state, what we call Rus, actually historians prefer not to call it Russian, we tend to call it Russian, uh, which is rather a cumbersome term. But anyway, the first Russian state was founded by a Viking, Rurik. He surrounded himself. He was succeeded by other Vikings on the princely throne, which eventually settled in Kiev. So this is going back to literally the 800s. President Putin talked about this to Tucker Carlson last week. He went right back. To, he talked about Rurik and his stepdaughter or granddaughter, or whoever it was, who then married someone else. And th those early founding families he seemed very focused on. I, I suppose the idea was that if Kiev is the source of Russia, it was and must remain part of Russia. But it's this confusion between Russia and Rus, because uh, the Russians, or the, or the, or I should say the Slavonic peoples living in that area, I mean, they developed all sorts of different dialects. They um, they moved eastwards, northwards, and so on. So you get all sorts of areas being drawn in, which develop their own political identity over time. So essentially, the, the Putin version is that the Russians are both especially Slavonic, but also descendants of a Viking prince. Yeah, the, the Slavonic element is absolutely crucial because the people, a Slav population. And I think one would accept that the inhabitants living under the rule of these Vikings were predominantly, at the start, in the 9th, 10th centuries, many of them were indeed Slavs. Whether one wanted to, wants to describe them as Ukrainian or Russian or whatever, it's all a bit of a nonsense at that particular period. So this then engages with a concept which you find really in the sort of Marxist vocabulary, the, the whole idea of state formation as something which can only really be achieved by the people themselves. So the fact that Rurik and his friends are Vikings, that can be sort of pushed to the side. Um, indeed, a lot of these uh, Soviet historians in the past really didn't want to talk about the Vikings at all. They tried really to to sort of excise them to a large extent. Just because the Vikings were trading, they, the Vikings were trading the Slavs as slaves. So literally, well, there, there was that, and also simply the fact of being conquered by people of Germanic origin who'd come down from the north. It just it it wasn't as it were, a happy story, if you like. So. This idea, for instance, that before the Vikings arrived, there was a settlement at Kiev, which had supposedly been founded by a prince called Ki, and whether or not he existed, goodness knows. Um, and so some sort of Slavonic settlement, fair enough. That's usually the case with, with these cities when they emerge. There's been something there before. But 
trying to see the Slavonic population as a single unit. And I think what I really object to here is the misunderstanding about the history of that whole region that we now call Ukraine, because it's a very open region. We're dealing with steppe land stretching north from the Black Sea, deep into Eurasia. And it was uh, an open area which was accessible to all sorts of nomadic peoples. If you go back into antiquity, you've got the Scythians, who were described by Herodotus. And then in the early Middle Ages, actually contemporary with the Rus in Kiev, you've got the Hazars, who were a Turkish people whose leaders rather unusually adopted as their sort of state religion, Judaism. And then you've got Islamic peoples to the east, you've got Buddhists coming in. And so you've got every single ethnic religious group in that area coming and going because it's that sort of space which is open to no borderlands. Conquerors. Uh, yes, indeed, which is what Ukraine uh, actually means. The current ethnic composition of Ukraine, it's something which is the result of a very long evolution in which layer upon layer upon layer of different peoples have arrived. Sometimes they've been expelled. I mean, the Crimean Tatars were taken away uh, by Stalin, the great majority of them, and dispersed into the depths of the Soviet Union. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If we're going to take that idea seriously, it is also a little bit problematic for the Western view of Ukraine, isn't it? And the sort of Zelensky view of Ukraine, which is that it is a coherent state, that it should fall within the Western bloc and that its destiny is somehow 
probably inside the European Union. We had a guy on this show called Oleksiy Arestovich, who is actually challenging Zelensky for the presidency at the time when there is going to be another election, whenever that is. And his view is pretty much, as you say, that Ukraine is such a fabric of different ethnicities and peoples that a more federated structure that allows those differences, allows the Russian-speaking peoples to be more Russian-facing, the more Western Ukrainians to be more Western-facing, would be preferable. And that there's something about the the current view of Ukraine that is also flawed. What what do you say to that? Well, well in a way, what I'm saying is, is the opposite. I'm saying that it's precisely the variety within Ukraine, you know, areas in the West, which until the Second World War were part of Poland, areas in the East where the population is predominantly Russian-speaking, cities like Odessa, uh, which are quite recent foundations, you know, end of the uh, 18th century, which were created with a very large mixed population, lots of Greeks. Mariupol is famous, actually, for the fact that that's where Catherine the Great settled large numbers of Greeks. So it's precisely that diversity that, in my view, has made Ukraine different. And there's an interesting comparison here, actually, which is in the 1920s, 1930s, when Marshal Pilsudski was ruling over Poland. I mean, he started off democratically and then became a bit of a dictator. Uh, and his whole, I mean, at that point, Poland, which had different borders, included an enormous ethnic mix, including Ukrainians, including, of course, millions of Jews who were later exterminated. So his ideal was actually to create a state in which these different groups would live harmoniously. That was then sort of betrayed by his successors who had a much more sort of Poland-centered view of the state's identity, Polish-centered view of the state's identity. So it's precisely the way in which Ukraine is a mix, the precisely the way in that it has been, that it has evolved out of these different layers of population, which I think does make it so your argument back to Putin would be that his sort of overly ethnic, ethno-focused yeah. way of carving up countries is in fact the opposite of, of the true identity of Indeed, Ukraine. Indeed, yes, that it's, it's sort of archaic. It is something which, as I say, has its deep roots in the Soviet way of thinking and beyond that. And it has to be said that uh, some Ukrainian historians have have taken this sort of a very strongly ethnic view of of their nation. The most famous Ukrainian historian, a man called Khrushchevsky, who eventually became an exile in the United States and, and wrote the enormous history of Ukraine. That is very much built around the sense that the only true Ukrainians are sort of Ukrainian-speaking Slavs. And I mean, for instance, when he deals with the famous pogroms against the Jews in the 17th century, he passes over them very quickly. It's not something he wants to discuss. Whereas nowadays, if you look at the sorts of books that have been uh, produced, a lot of books coming out lately on history of Ukraine, much more balanced in that sort of respect, and, and much more, uh, you know, thinking much more about the uh, the way in which this cocktail of peoples has evolved. So we've talked a little bit about the ancient history or or the early history. Putin is obviously very focused on the more recent history as well. His central argument is that an understanding existed between Russia and the West at the time of the late 80s when the USSR fell apart, that there would be no NATO expansion eastwards, and that the West basically reneged on that promise 
first in 2008 in Bucharest with President Bush, where he opened the doors to NATO for Ukraine, and then subsequently in 2014 and so on. As a historian, what's your response to that? Well, as a historian, what I do, I, this is a bit disappointing as an answer, I know, is I observe that. It's not my task, and particularly, of course, in the case of very recent history, uh, where the issues are still very much up in the air. I, I don't take sides on this. Um, but I do think that as a sovereign nation, Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian government has the right to make its own decisions about whether it wants to look westwards or eastwards. And we know that there have been previous Ukrainian governments which have been much more committed to looking eastwards. If you look at Belarus, of course, the dictator there definitely looks eastwards and seems perfectly happy to unite his, his country with, with Russia. I feel I have to ask you about the oceans before we let you go, because you're perhaps most famous for your histories of the ocean. You really kind of opened up that as a, as a historical terrain. The oceans are also back in a big way into today's history, both with what's happening in the Red Sea and the Black Sea, your most recent area of study. It feels like in a way that maybe hasn't felt so true in recent decades, that's where the action is. Do you observe that? What you're asking ties in very much with the sort of approach I've tried to adopt in my writing, which is to try to look at human history from the perspective of the sea rather than, as most people do, obviously, from the perspective of the land. So if you're looking at the history of the Black Sea from that perspective, uh, then you do get this sort of kaleidoscopic effect of all these peoples coming down to its shores, interacting with one another, sometimes in a very positive way, sometimes conquering one another's territories, expelling one another, and so on, and trade across these spaces and things like this. Now, if we look at the current situation, just starting with the uh, Black Sea, um, it's very interesting to tie that in with a very long history of competition between the powers on the northern sides and the powers on the southern side. Uh, I mean, the Ottoman Ottoman Turks against the Russians. There's an enormously long history of that at all sorts of levels from Cossack pirates right up to uh, competition between uh, two empires, between the Tsarist Empire and and the Ottoman Empire. But I guess what's new is we haven't, the, the Western powers haven't been as interested in the Black Sea until recently. Are we a new entrant into that competition? We're fairly new. I mean, during the the 19th century, of course, uh, we did fight a very significant war in the Black Sea, which was the Crimean War. But the Crimean War, in many ways, is just a hiatus in what was a period of growing trade, the rise of Odessa, um, this massive grain trade, which actually goes back millennia, but grew to phenomenal proportions in the 19th century. So there's there's actually been quite a lot of, whether you're talking about navies, whether you're talking about merchant marine, there's been quite a lot of Western involvement in the history of the Black Sea, particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries. First World War, not much happened there, to be frank, but the Russian Empire was collapsing anyway, and the, and the Turkish Empire was collapsing anyway. So the Black Sea had a relatively quiet period compared to other parts of the world. Do you think it will remain a predominantly Russian zone, the Black Sea? No, because the Russians have not succeeded in establishing 
their domination in the Black Sea. I think that's quite clear. The expulsion of Russian troops from this island, which is the only significant island in the Black Sea, Snake Island, uh, quite near the border between Ukraine and Moldova, um, that has meant that it is possible for the Ukrainians to open up their trade routes along the coast of Southeast Europe, right down to Istanbul. Um, and that's a big blow to the Russians. And also the Russians, of course, have had great difficulty uh, holding on to... There's that area where Crimea joins the European landmass. And, um, and there, too, the Russians have faced enormous difficulty. You're not in the business of making political predictions, but we have you on the show, so we might as well ask. There's been a lot of talk with the potential President Trump return, with the United States generally cooling on its never-ending support of this conflict and NATO and the rest of it, that some sort of effective partition of Ukraine might become the reality for some time to come, some sort of frozen conflict where the eastern provinces remain essentially Russian and that Ukraine can begin to rebuild in its western parts. Do you think that's a likely outcome? I think it is quite a likely outcome. What one doesn't want is official acknowledgement that Russia has title to those territories that it has acquired, Donbass and so on, which include a lot of the industrial heartland of Ukraine. I suppose you could make a sort of analogy with the situation in Cyprus, where you have a sort of stability. I mean, no blood is shed, no blood's been shed for years between the Greeks and the Turks in Cyprus. But um, the Cypriot government has sort of somehow has to live with the fact that about a third of the island is under foreign occupation. But would you favour some sort of solution like that, that put an end to the fighting for now and left the problem to future generations to argue over? Well, as an ardent democrat, of course, I would favour um, a proper vote, properly supervised vote, both in the mainland regions and in Crimea. We read in the newspapers this morning that we're having trouble getting tea down the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. And that really, once again, felt like history has come back to bite us, because as I recall, that was one of the main commodities we were trading down that route. In Victorian times, we seem to be again. Well, every now and again, of course, the Suez Canal gets blocked. It was blocked during the Suez crisis of 1956. It was blocked for many years after the Six-Day War when Israel uh, captured the whole of Sinai. So uh, I suppose you know there are, there are precedents for this. Yes, I mean, it's worrying because precisely because the Suez Canal has become yeah, the number one waterway linking the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean. Uh, and the alternative of going around the bottom of, of Africa, as we know, is very expensive and slow and so on. Um, so um, maybe we'll have to develop our own tea plantations. I read somewhere that they do produce tea in the Scilly Isles, but uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe not in sufficient quantities. What would your message be if uh, someone from the Kremlin is watching this video? Is your message that you'd like to be removed from the sanctions list? Or do you think it's unfair or do you, are you quite happy sitting on it? The sanctions list forbids me from entering Russia, um, which is fine because um, actually um, I don't see myself doing that anyway. I've, I've never been and it's not on on my current list of places I'm desperate to go to. I believe you also can't open a Russian bank account. Oh dear, I hadn't realised that. Yes, 
Okay. <laughs> well, Professor, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. That was Professor David Abulafia, maritime historian and now officially a sanctioned person by the Kremlin. I don't know about you, but he didn't sound especially dangerous to me. But we offer his stimulating history of the region to any members of Putin's circle that may be interested in an alternative perspective. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.